You're listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Putnam. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I am joined today by John Rennie. He has spent the majority of his adult life in a leadership role teaching people how to lead, and he has done an amazing job at that. He's written a best-selling book on Amazon called I Have the Watch. He has actually partnered with Rugged Legacy and and being one of its sponsors. But most amazingly, the skills that he's learned in leadership and through life that he teaches to others has been through what he gained in experience in his five years as a Navy submarine officer. So, John, it's a pleasure to have you on, brother. Hey, Jeff. Good to be here. Yeah, uh, I've been following you for fi- uh, quite some time now, and I haven't seen anything you've put out there that wasn't just solid gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. I, I've been leading uh, people for 30 years, and um, you know, a lot of the stuff is not theoretical. It's, it's what I've done and have been doing for all this time, and, and I'm still doing it today with my own business. So, um, it's just, you know, a lot of stuff I put out there, just practical advice that I've learned through actually doing it, not something I read in a book. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? You know, anybody can say, well, in theory, this works until you try to, you know, get it enacted in a mass scale and you've got 50 people beneath you and they're just, they think it's all horse crap. There's no way this works because, you know, it hasn't actually been tried and put into place before. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just the fact that, you know, I've had an opportunity to run teams as small as six and as many as 600 people. Um, you, you know, a lot of these ideas and techniques you read in book theories or what have you, some work, some don't work. Uh, but really what leadership comes right down to is people and having relationships. And just like you have a one-on-one relationship with your friends, uh, your wife, your coworkers, that's what leadership is, is having that one-on-one relationship with your employees. And we kind of make leadership complicated, but it doesn't have to be that. It's about relationships, and that's what it's all about. And, and we forget that, and uh, that's what I try to bring it back to in everything I talk about. Yeah, I, uh, I remember hearing that when I was first getting into the management side of you know, my own nine-to-five. Uh, you know, it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. And I, I, I never really understood it at first until I got into it, you know, a little deeper. And mm. I started realizing, because I think everybody has this uh, misconception of what leadership is, especially, you know, leadership in the military. Mm. Uh, they they think of, uh, you know, the, the boss who points his finger and says, this be done or else, or um, military-wise, they'll think of full metal jacket and they have... Yeah. Yeah. You know, gun, gunny in their head, screaming and threatening to kill them if yeah. it doesn't get done. Yeah. But that type of leadership doesn't get you very far. No, it doesn't. And it's funny because a lot of people think that because I come from a military background, a military leadership background, that that's the, the mindset I bring to, uh, to leadership, which is a command and control. Like, I, I'm the... I'm the officer, you, you have to uh, listen to what I have to say because of my rank. But the truth of the matter is, is that I served in a very unique uh, role in the military, and that is on a submarine at sea. And I did, I did seven deployments uh, during the end of the Cold War, and 
it's amazing when you spend that much time with 150 guys. And at the time there was no women on submarines, but it was 150 guys out at sea, you know, for, you know, over three months at a time. And you really, you develop these, you know, friendships, these bonds, and you develop deep relationships. And it wasn't, um, I mean, I, I was, I had deep relationships with the people that worked for me and the people I, I worked for and my peers. Um, there wasn't this officer enlisted uh, kind of division that you see in other branches of the military because we were in such tight quarters. You couldn't, you know, there, you couldn't go someplace and be away from, you know, uh, enlisted or, you know, the officers had their own special place or the senior enlisted had their own special place. We were pretty much, we were eating the same food. We wore pretty much the same uniform with the exception of our belt. And um, we, you know, we, if, if one guy didn't, if, if one, if we didn't have something, nobody had it. Right. So we all suffered together. We had, we enjoyed things together, but um, there was a, not a lot of separation. And I brought that kind of mentality into, you know, my, my work life as well. Yeah. Um, you know, people that want to say, well, do you lead from the front? Do you lead from the back? Do you lead from the middle? Hmm. You lead from wherever it works, as long as you can see what's going on. And you can't do that if you guys are in a uh, separate locations all the time with your own environments, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've learned as a good leader at work, you know, I have to be on the floor with people. Yes. Yes. You know, you, you and I talk a little bit before we got started, we're both in manufacturing. And one of the things I see in manufacturing a lot of times is you have offices where you're, you know, your office people work, and then you have the factory where your, you know, where your factory workers work, and they literally are in two distinct physical locations that are different. And the guys on the shop floor don't know what the guys in the office do, and the guys in the office don't know what's going on in, on the shop floor because they're physically separated. And so a lot of things I talk about in my writings are like, get out of your office, go to where the value is added, and you know, be with the people that are on, you know, the other side and, uh, and get to know them because, you know, the worst thing you can have in any, any organization is an us and them attitude. Like, Oh, those guys don't listen or those guys, I don't know what they do all day. Right. So trying to get away from that us and them, uh, mindset. So one of the things I try to talk about when I talk about, um, organizations and is this idea of the enemy is outside the four walls. The enemy is not, uh, engineering or purchasing or, you know, the shop, it's, it's outside the four walls. It's your competition, right? You've got to come, come together and you've got to be able to compete against those, those guys who want to take away your, they want to take away your jobs, right? They want to, they want to sell their more, their products than, than your products, right? They want to take away your jobs. And if you can bring yourselves together being one team, different roles, but one team and the enemies outside the four walls, that's, that's going to be a more successful organization than an us and them kind of organization. Yeah. And I don't think that there's a, uh, a limit to the scale at which an attitude like that works. Mm. Um, it, it, it can work something as, you know, something as small as a, you know, four or five, 10 person family, or like you said, 600 man ship. Yeah. 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 As long as there's not an us and them, as long as everybody understands that it's one team in one fight with a one goal, you know, everybody pulling in the same direction, you know, that's what makes leadership effective. So 
obviously you didn't start off as this great leader <laughs> it's, it nobody does it's a skill yeah. you have to learn i know i really had to learn it because yeah. again like we just talked about i had this real big misconception of what being a leader was people confuse mm. leader and boss a lot mm. yes um so what got you into the leadership side i mean i know you just you know normally you had advanced through the ranks in the navy um and did you ever come to a point when you were like, okay, I really need to step my gang up, my game up if I'm going to, you know, lead effectively. Because in a military type scenario, you just can't walk in and be like, hey, I, I rank over you. Uh, listen to me, because that's not going to work that way. Yeah, that's you're 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 spot on. So so my first job in the Navy, uh, once I finished all my training, when I showed up to, I was on the USS Tennessee. It's a ballistic missile submarine, and I showed up as an ensign. An ensign is an O-1. It's the lowest ranking officer that you possibly can be. It's lower than dirt, right? So you, you, it's called a, you wear a, a what's called a butter bar on your, uh, on your collar, right? And you're like the lowest level of officer out there, right? You're just fresh out of school. So I show up to Tennessee. She's in, she's in dry dock. And when you see a submarine out of the water like that, it, it's impressive. And there's hundreds of people working on it, getting it ready to go to sea. I get there, I show up, I throw my uh, sea bag on my rack and they take me back to my department. Uh, so I'm running at this, I'm gonna be running the reactor controls department. So it's six guys, gonna work for me. I meet the senior enlisted guy and he's been in the Navy almost as long as I've been alive. So how do you lead someone with vastly more experience, right? Uh, vastly more uh, you know, time underwater, time in the Navy, and then here's this young uh, butter bar, this ensign's going to tell him what to do. Yeah, right. So you are going to be ineffective as a leader if you, you try to tell people what to do in that kind of scenario. And that scenario repeated itself a lot of times throughout my career. I was 32 years old when I took over my first manufacturing plant. And the same thing there. I met the senior leadership team at the plant, and one of the guys had been there for 30 years, you know. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, well, how am I as a young leader going to be able to, you know, effectively manage this team when they're vast, you know, vastly more experienced and uh, they've been doing this for, for so much longer. And I think the, the bottom line is it comes down to, um, you know, respecting and showing respect to the people that have been, been there for a long time and they've been doing it. It's, it's the ability to listen and learn and be respectful and uh, I think having done that many times in my career, that, uh, that's really what it comes right down to, is just slowing down and saying, look, I know by rank I'm in charge, but by experience I'm not, and I need to listen and learn. And I think, I think you gain a lot of respect as a leader when you do that, when you, when you, when you don't pretend like you're an expert. Oh, absolutely. You have to take your ego out of it yeah. uh, if you're planning on leading. You know, there's people that uh, at my job, like you said, they've been there nearly as long as I've been alive. Mm. And when I got over to the management side, I'm not going to boss this guy around. You know, <laughs> there's yeah, no way. Yeah. He's old enough to be my dad. Right. Uh, one thing that I did learn was deferring to their knowledge. Because yes. while, while we may have the position of leadership, 
they have the position and the leverage of experience that we yeah. can then use our position to leverage in their benefit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You, you just, you just nailed it. I mean, leadership is a different job, right? So you don't necessarily have to be the best, uh, you know, manufacturing engineer to lead a team of manufacturing engineers, but you have to be really good at leading, right? And leading is a different skill set. And so, you know, in corporate America, what I've seen is we take people who are good at one thing. So you might have a great engineer, right? And then we promote them to engineering manager. And so that manager now, he goes back in his office and he starts doing drawings again because he's really good at that. That's his comfort zone, right? He's never learned how to manage people. He's just been promoted because he was good at doing engineering work. And, and so many managers in corporate America are just that type of boss. They've been promoted because they're good at what, you know, what they, you know, as an individual contributor, they get put in a leadership role and they just go back to that. They don't actually take the role of, okay, now my, my role is different. Now I have to lead. What does that really mean? Right. Looking out for your team and doing what only a leader can do. Right. And, uh, you know, making sure you're communicating up properly with what the needs are of your organization, these sort of things, your, your role changes and shifts. And sometimes a lot of these managers don't make the shift, right? And so they're stuck in their, you know, their comfort zone of do, being doers and not leaders. Yeah, and there's a very big distinction uh, between those two things, you know, uh, leading and doing. I mean, you can do while leading, but you can't lead while doing. Mm. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's something I figured out. And it, it's a bit of a, a conundrum and a paradox. But, you know, like I was saying, as a leader, what I found to be most effective was saying to the guys who've been there, you know, as long as I've been alive, you know more about this. Mm. What would make it better? And then I can use my position to put that into place. But it's going to be, I can't come out here on the floor and change things up saying, I'm going to make this better for you when I've got zero knowledge of what's going on. Right. You tell me, the guy with the most experience, the guy with, you know, more dirt under his knuckles and notches on his belt, you tell me what makes this better. You tell me what will make it worse. You tell me what I can do to facilitate mm. progress on your end. And then I'll use my position to do that. Bingo. Yeah. And it's a it's a whole lot easier to lead that way. It is. It basically leading is serving in, in a manner of speaking. It is. You know, and, it, and you, you just nailed it right there where you're talking about talking to the people, you know, all of the answers, right. To all the problems that's in, that are in your organization reside in the heads of the people that work there. Right. So anytime, you know, I've, I worked in corporate America for 22 years. Right. And so, I've seen it over the years where they only trust consultants. They, they, I'm not going to trust the people. I'm, I'm going to go get, I'm going to bring these consultants in. So what do the consultants do? They go around and they meet with people and they hear all of the problems and, and they hear all of the solutions from the people in, in, in the organization. And then they present to management and they say, Hey, you know, here's our answers. You know, here's, here's how to solve the problem. And, you know, like I've always noticed that, wait, wait a second. Those, those are, those are our ideas, right? Those are what we talked about. So as a leader, right? Your, your job is kind of take away the consultant's role, right? Talk to your people, right? Um, you know, I, when I take over a new organization, anytime I take in a new leadership role, 
I meet one-on-one -on -one with every single one of the employees that work for me. And I ask them three questions and three questions only. And I say, what's going well? What's going wrong? And if you're in my shoes right now, what would be the first thing you would do? And what's remarkable is that if once I have all that list, all that information, it's remarkable how those coalesce around, you know, a few common points. And so I walk away from those meetings as a new leader, kind of have a really good understanding of the business. And I know like what I'm going to do first, and what I'm going to do next. Right. And, and all I did was just talk to people. I didn't, I'm not brilliant. I just listened and talked and, and, and talked to the people. And it's, uh, that's where all your answers are. They're right there inside the four walls. And we, we tend to think that we got to go fancy, but it's really right there. Yeah. As simple as it sounds, if, uh, and to use some Navy terminology here, if you don't know how to sail the ship, ask the sailors. That's it. It's not that hard. <laughs> it's very simple. It really uh, is. Uh, you know, and, and leadership scales down to, Again, even on a family level, if I want to know what's best for my family, I yes. ask my family. Yes. You know? Yeah. You know, having that relationship and having the communication lines open, you know, uh, I wrote a little bit about uh, morning meetings. We have a morning stand-up meeting at our company every morning, right? 8.30. And I said, it's like gathering around the breakfast table, right? We're, 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 we're seeing how each other is. Um, you know, figuring out what's going on for the day, getting on the same page. Uh, I look at my small company acts like a family and, and I look at my communication with, with my team, like almost like a father does with a family, right? It's, it's the, it's a two-way communication, but in some cases it's a one-way communication, but it's definitely more of a, if you can understand family dynamics, then you can understand how to be a leader if you're doing it right. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Um, so what have been some of the struggles you've had uh, in becoming a leader? Because like I said, like we talked about it, you know, a few minutes ago, you didn't walk into leadership knowing exactly how you were going to lead, especially if you had no prior experience. Mm, so yeah, yeah. what could you possibly, uh, you know, kind of pass on uh, advice wise to people that are just coming into leadership that is something you struggled with? So I think um, being a young leader, uh, I, how do I, how do I say that? I, I had, um, I felt like I had all the answers, right? I, I did feel like um, that I, I was, you know, I was, I had all the wisdom I had the, because I was, I was promoted. So I must be uh, smarter than everybody else. Right. And so in, I think in my early days as a leader, I was aggressive, young and aggressive, and I would push, push, push. And um, I didn't necessarily take the time to listen as much as I should have. And so I think my wisdom or the things I talk about today is, is an evolutionary process, right? Over, it seems like the more years I've been in leadership, the less I know, right? Um, I knew I had all the answers <laughs> when I was a young leader. Now I don't have the answers as an older leader. So um, I, I just remember one time having a brainstorming session with a group of employees and, and I was going, you know, crazy and, you know, like, this is a great idea. Let's go, let's go. Like, and there was one guy in the room that was just quiet. And uh, I just, for some reason thought, well, I'm going to ask him what he, what he thinks. And I pointed to him. I said, what, what, what do you think? 
And I realized that 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 guy had been listening to all the talking and he'd been thinking the whole time. And my younger self would have been just like, well, I got no time for you because you're silent, right? But um, I realized that the, the, the quietest guy in the room typically has the best answer, right? Because they're not talking, they're thinking, you know? And um, so I think over the years, I've become more in tune with trying to, trying to find the answers from, from people and less from myself. And because that, the quietest person in the room sometimes has the best idea. And if you're running too hard, you're, you're going to miss it. And um, I also used to push really hard too, as a leader, I was always like, come on, we can do better. Let's go, let's go. And I realized everybody's at a different stage in their life. Right. And that not everybody's like young and, you know, and gung ho, they, you know, they're, <laughs> they've got problems in their life and they've got issues they're dealing with. They don't want to deal with a young, you know, way too energetic uh, leader. So I've had to calm down a little bit. I've had to, uh, you know, uh, realize I've become more humble over the years and I realize I don't have the answers and I really am trying to work with people more. So that's been evolutionary. And, and, and I think now I try to help younger leaders to, to make that jump quicker than I, it took me a long time to get there, get there. So, but probably the big change. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, wisdom comes with knowing that you don't know anything. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you have all the answers, you're a terrible leader. Right, right, right. And I, and I used to think I had to have the answers, right? Because I was the boss. I, I had to have the answers. And now it's like, I, I'm happy not to have the answers. I'm happy to go to the people and, and uh, see, see what they come up with. Because usually their answers are going to be better, right? Patton said that, you know, don't tell people what to do. Tell them what the goal is and let them surprise you with the results. And I have take that more, more of that kind of an attitude now. As I, that, I, that is one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, I love it, man. It just let them do it. And you're going to be, you're going to be, you know, always impressed and surprised by the results versus telling them exactly what to do. You know, the thing is with a micromanager, right? If somebody wants to control everything, you're only going to be good as yourself, right? You're only going to be good as whatever you're capable of. But if you can get the collective wisdom of the team working on something, it's always going to be better, right? And I think that's what I've learned over the years is to just rely on that collective wisdom and less on just my own skill set. And it's been much better. Yeah. If you just tell someone how to get it done, you know, they're only going to do it the way you told them. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I really like, you know, the concept of giving others the freedom to operate. I don't care. When I, when I train people at work, I tell them, this is what the end result has to look like. Mm. You know, I don't care if you do it with your feet. Mm. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if you do it with your feet. Right as long as the end result looks like this, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it gives, and it gives them the freedom to come up with their own method and way to get it done. Of course, there's going to be some parameters that they have to stay within, but ultimately I don't care if you pick this piece up first or that piece up Mm. first, as long as it looks like this in the end and it functions, we're good. Right. Right. And and allow that a bit of freedom. And even with the, the entire process, something we started doing recently was uh, we started pulling people from the lines, you know, to the office and showing them the control plan, you know, the FEMA control plans for the process engineers and the process engineers will say, how do you, this is how we have it on paper, but how do you do it out there? 
and let the guys walk them through that way. And our efficiency goes up. Yes. When the people who are doing it every single day can talk to the process engineers who make, you know, four or five times as much as the guys on the floor, just be quiet because <laughs> they're, they're learning from what and the way it's actually done versus, well, yeah. this is how we want you guys to do it. Yes. Yeah. And it's really cool to see what can happen when you give people freedom as a leader. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's right. And, and I think the idea of bringing the, the, the guys that are actually doing it to into the area where, you know, the guys are trying to plan it. Um, I think the, the thing you get there is, is a hard dose of reality. Right. And, you know, I'm an engineer, mechanical engineer by training, right? So uh, you draw something on a drawing, right? And you've got a beautiful three-dimensional part. You get all your tolerances right and all that. And then you give the, you give your drawing to production and they, they say, well, we can't make that. You're like, what do you mean you can't make that? Wait, so you didn't, you didn't do this. You didn't make this uh, relief. You've got a too tight of a radius on here. Our machines aren't capable of this. You put too tight a tolerance on this. If you back this up. So I learned as a young engineer uh, the way when I, my first job out of military, we, I was on, I was in design engineering and our, our it's kind of cool because our, our engineering department was right above the production floor, right? Our machine shop. And what was cool is that uh, I would just go downstairs and take my drawing to some of the senior guys. And I'm like, I want to try to make this part, but I also want to make it to it so that you can, you guys can build it and it's easy to build. What should I be doing differently? And, um, you know, just doing that, my, my ability to be a more effective engineer, you know, jumped, it skyrocketed because I was actually dealing with the reality, the reality of the guys who had to build the part, right? Um, I wasn't just saying, look, I'm the engineer, build it the way I said it was, uh, I, I, build it the way I drew it. And because um, some guys did that, right? They're like, just, you know, I'm, I'm the engineer, I've got the four-year degree, you do it the way I told you. Really? How about the guy that's been making those parts for, you know, 25 years? Let's, why don't we listen to them, you know? And I think that really helped me early on to realize, oh, wow, you know, I don't really have all the answers, but I do know who, who knows what's going on, right? So bring that, you know, the theory to practice, bring those things together. And I think you're going to be more effective than just trying to, trying to do it, you know, in, in your office, theoretically, right? You, you know, get, get a dose, a hard dose of reality every time. It's good. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what you had said uh, towards the beginning, hmm. uh, the things that you teach are things that have been implemented. They have been tried and tested hmm. and they're not just on theory in paper hmm. because I think a lot of leaders, when they get into the, uh, the headspace of a boss rather than a leader, hmm. you know, and they, they tend to forget about the human element hmm of progress you know no matter how good it looks on paper no matter how good it sounds in the book until you have humans doing it you have no idea whether or not it's actually going to work yeah, yeah because you don't have because people are different people are not machines i i can make five machines that will do the exact same thing if i tell it to but these five different people are going to operate and move and just communicate with each other so differently mm. That you have to be very versatile and on your feet and ready and open for any type of pushback and resistance that you can react to with and give more room for, for parameters of uh, fluctuation and planning when it comes to dealing with people. Hmm. You know, people, yeah. uh, leaders forget they're dealing with people. 
<laughs> you know, they're not doing and yes, you know, they think it, it's supposed to be robotic and it's not. And it's very yeah. frustrating to see a leader struggle with that. Yeah, I mean, you just nailed it. I, I, I say a lot in my uh, writing and in my book, I say it a lot too, is that people are messy, right? I mean, we, we want to take a cookie cutter approach to leading them, but, but people are different. Everybody has had different, they've been brought up differently. They have different uh, family backgrounds. They, there's gender issues, there's race issues, there's all this background and all this baggage. And then people are dealing with problems at home, maybe divorce, or they've had a sick child or something like that. So they're bringing all that into, the, into work every day, right? And so if you're just trying to take a cookie cutter approach and like, no, everybody does it this way. Nobody can have any extra time off. Everybody has to, you know, follow the rules exactly the same. Then people get frustrated and they're saying, well, you know, my situation's different. But, but the thing is that people are messy. They're going to, everybody's going to have, and everybody's led differently, right? They, they respond differently to criticism, they, uh, to praise. Some guys could care less. I don't, I don't want any awards or accolades. I just want to do my job and I'll, and I want to do the best of my ability. I, you know, you thanking me doesn't help me, right? And other guys, you go there and you thank them. Hey, thanks for staying extra. And like, man, I really appreciate this guy. This guy is a great boss, right? So everybody just responds differently. And if you're smart, you know, like your children, you have plenty of children, Jeff. <laughs> so you know this, right? <laughs> I have plenty of children, yes. You have plenty of children. So you know that each child is really different and each responds to... You, you know, you being a, a father to them differently, right? Some, some, some might need a little harsh, right? You, know, you need to get a little tough with them. And some, you know, uh, I have two boys and one, one responds really well to, to uh, you know, harsh criticism. The other one is more sensitive, right? And so people are like that too. They have, they have they're, all, they're all a little bit different. And you gotta, you've got to learn how to, what works with them, what, what makes them tick, right? What, uh, what's effective with them? And that's hard, right? It's easy to say cookie cutter, everybody the same, but, but that's not how, you know, the real world works. So, I, you know, it's just like raising kids. It's good. Everyone's going to be just a little bit different, you know? Yeah, that reminds me of a story. Uh, it happened in World War I, I believe. They had, I think it was three lieutenants, Right. Three, you know, fresh out of officer candidate school lieutenants. I'm pretty sure it wasn't called OCS back then, but three lieutenants and a captain had to give three different orders. And a captain told one lieutenant, whatever you do, don't do X. He told the other lieutenant, I told other guy to do X, but I think you can do a better job. And he told the other one, go do X. And they all three went and did exactly that. Yes. Because they responded differently to the different types of leadership because he had the foresight of, you know, these guys are not like, I can't tell this guy go do that because he's just going to not do it because he doesn't respond to direct authority very well. Yes. And so I can't lead him in that manner. And it's like you said, with my kids, you know, with one of my sons, he says he wants to do something. I can say, I bet you can't because you're a sissy. Yeah. yeah. You know, and he's going to go out of his way to prove me wrong. And yes. he's going to stand up and, you know, pound his just like, Ugh, you did it. Yes. You yes. know? Yeah. And then I tell, I can tell another one, you know, it's okay if you can't do that. It's, you know, it's no big deal. And he's like, well, no, it's not okay. I got to go do that. And then he'll do it, you know? And then with my daughter, it's like, 
I, I can't even really effectively communicate with a seven-year-old girl because look at me. Do I look like I'm capable of communicating effectively with a seven-year-old girl? But, you know, with her, I have to take a very much, you know, very softer approach because she's just like your mom in every single way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's very soft and delicate and pink. Yeah. And I can push her out of that and be like, you know, those boys are outdoing you over there, you know. And next thing you know, she's climbing trees and nose diving through the mud. So uh, it, it's it, it's the same with it's the same with people on a mass scale. You have to yeah. talk to them differently and see what they respond to differently. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And that's more work, right? So, it, but uh, and a lot of guys don't want to put the work in and 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 make that. Uh, but I mean, if you so I you know I always say too, like if you don't love people, if you don't love being around them, then don't go into leadership because it's a people business, right? It's about it's about people. Yeah. And a lot of guys, they go into leadership because they want the corner office or they want the title or, you know, maybe there's some perks or a bonus or whatever, but they don't go into it for the right reason. And, um, and, and it shows, right? I mean, um, I think the statistics are like 75% or 70% of people are disengaged at work. And partly because they have bosses who are not in it to, to lead, they're in it to just get the, you know, to get the benefits of the job. And I yeah, think they want the accolades of being a leader, but yeah. 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 But they don't want to take the responsibility when things go bad. Right. So when things go bad, they throw their guys under the bus, but when things go good, they want the, the praise and, and what have you. And I, I've seen a lot of guys like that in corporate America and you know, I, you know it, it is what it is, but you're, you, they're not, they're not leaders. They're just in it for themselves. Right. So yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't think leadership is a job. I think leadership is a title that's bestowed by those that are being led. It's not, you could be a manager, but you're not a leader until you get that title bestowed upon you by the people that you're actually leading. Right. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one thing, one thing I noticed, you know, a big difference between the military and uh, corporate America that I always try to point out is, um, when we were in the Navy, right, as a Naval officer, we, they used to tell us you could delegate authority, but you could never delegate responsibility. You were always responsible for uh, your department, your, your group, right? But you could delegate the authority to get something done, right? But if anything went wrong, it was still on you, right? You had that responsibility. Right. What I see in corporate America is just the opposite, right? We delegate responsibility, but then the boss keeps all the authority. They don't give people the authority to get the job done. But if anything goes wrong, they'll take, they want the people to take the blame. So we do just the opposite, it seems, in corporate America than what we did in the military. And, um, and you know, people get frustrated when you don't give them the authority to, to that, that's, you know, that, that's equal to their responsibility, right? You know, we say, oh, you know, you're responsible for this department, but your spending authority is $300. I was like, oh, wait a second. I, you basically, I have no authority is what you're saying, right? So, so I think that we get that wrong sometimes too in businesses where we, we, we hold people accountable, but yet we don't, you know, responsible, but we don't give them the tools, right? Uh, we don't give them the tools to be, you know, to have that authority. And that's a big problem I see. Yeah. Uh, it, to me, that's very similar to Jocko Willink's yeah. um, leadership capital is what he calls it. Mm-hmm. You've only got so much leadership capital. And when it comes to credit as a leader for something going well, you get none. Mm, yes. 
something went well, it's because the people. Yes. If something went went wrong, it's because of the leader. Yes. You know, (laughs) and that's a very hard pill to swallow if you have this inflated ego. Yes. Yeah. We do do see that a lot, though. Yeah, you're right on it. And that's the thing. You know, when I, you know, I named the book, uh, the book is uh, I Have the Watch and Becoming a Leader Worth Following. But when you have the watch, right, in the Navy and I'm sure in the Army as well, when you had the watch, you were responsible not only for, uh, the ship and the mission at that time, right? The mission that uh, you, st- you were standing watch for, like I stood off to the deck, right? I was responsible for the entire boat during that six hours I was, I was uh, on watch, right? But I was not only responsible for the mission, I was responsible for the people as well. And so having the watch, being a leader that has the watch means you're responsible 100% for what happens on your watch. So that means the organization and also the people. So if something goes wrong, it's on you, right? Uh, if something goes good, well, yeah, you might get some credit for it, but in truth, right, it's the people that did it, right? And so, um, so I think that kind of mindset, bringing that mindset to leadership where you have the watch, you're responsible, and you have that kind of mindset, I think that, um, that if we could have more leaders like that, I think we'd have a much more engagement in in corporate America than we do today. I mean, it's engagement's terrible to these days, but a lot of it is because leaders are in it for themselves. They're not necessarily in it for, you know, for the, for uh, the organization and the people. Oh, absolutely. Um, something I think that actually benefits, you know, even on smaller scales, uh, you know, the, I'm no longer in a leadership position at work. I actually stepped down from it uh, almost two years ago. Uh, and it was a very slow scale before I was completely out. But it was that kind of a bureaucracy where, mm. well, it's the people's fault. You're not going to engage with people. You just go do this. And having been one of the guys out on the floor, I'm like, that's just never going to work. And so it was that environment just wasn't what I was looking for. But one thing that I noticed that was very effective in leading, if you teach others or allow, just allow others to lead themselves, that, that, that gives them the freedom and the autonomy to make the decisions that you, know, that you no longer have to micromanage and you're not you know, spending all of that, um, like your leadership capital. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not spending every ounce of authority on making sure this is done this way. You let them lead themselves. Mm-hmm. And granted, you still have the oversight, and the authority may go to them for making decisions, but the responsibility still falls on you. Mm. But that le- that but that tends to, you know, lend credence to a, a healthier organization, one that actually functions, rather than constantly being reactive or responsive to what management or leadership is going to decide to do. It's almost like trying to operate in a vacuum. If you're trying to dictate and delegate every single decision, nothing's going to get done because you're only one man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I go back to um, my Navy days, right? Um, uh, you know, during the Cold War, we were trained up against the Soviets, right? That's that's what That was the big threat. Um, you know, uh, Reagan was president. We built up this big Navy. Cold War was going. We had the Soviets on one side, the Americans, you know, and uh, 
Uh, and submarines played a key role in that, right? There was the, you know, there's a lot of movies and uh, books written about, you know, the, the role that submarines played during that time. But Dawn it was for Red October kind of hit comes straight to mind. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so all these great, you know, movies and books were written during that, but there was a true cat and mouse game. But one of the things the Soviets would do, and I have no idea if this is probably not classified as a long time ago, but the Soviets would do is before they would do something like take action against us, they would go to periscope depth and they would contact Moscow and get approval before they would do things, right? So whenever time they would go to periscope depth, you know, it was like, oh, okay, I wonder what they're doing, right? Whereas uh, the American subs, we didn't have to do that. We had, we, had, um, we had autonomy once we were out at sea to make decisions on our own. So we didn't go ask for permission. And so that's why the Soviets were frustrated with us because we had no rhyme or reason on how what our tactics were. Yeah, we were all trained tactically, but we would all we were all cowboys, right? We were going to do things. We were going to use our own ingenuity to be able to defeat them. And they were following very cookie cutter Moscow dictated top down, and we were just all a bunch of cowboys. And so I always think about that when I worked in corporate and it got too much like a top down management. I was like, you know, you're, you're never going to be as good as we could be if you just give us some freedom and, and we'll, we'll, do, we'll do some things that, you'll be, you know, you'll be really proud of. But that, that's hard, you know, for, for leaders to let go and let their people take, take, take the reins. But, um, uh, you know, that, that I always think of that story and I think about the way the Soviets had to, you know, get permission first and we never did. So we were, at a, we were already at an advantage every time. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're talking about the Soviets and uh, the Cold War. My grandfather was, uh, well, he was Army and he was Navy. And then he did the Army Air Corps Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, d- during the Cold War. And uh, at, at the time he was at the time of the Cold War, he was stationed in Alaska and he was on a listening yeah. post. He was on a listening post. Yeah. Yeah. And he was way out. I believe it was the Bering Strait. Yeah. 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 Way out. And basically they could look over and they could see what looked like another, uh, like the forest ranger type watchtowers, you know, the ones that are just yeah, yeah. 17 or 18 stories tall or however tall they are. And they're yeah. just looking over and they're th- looking through field glasses at Russians who were just looking at field glasses through them. <laughs> and they were just listening to each other and watching for any kind of weird activity coming over the strait. And, uh, my grandfather had said that they used to fly in, uh, I think it was like every six months they would drop supplies and they'd have to get all covered up and bundled up and they'd go trucking out. Well, my grandfather, he really liked the sauce, you know, but he could never, he, all he was getting was bourbon and he was getting really sick of bourbon. And so, uh, he had cigars, he had his guitar with him. He had, he had plenty of bourbon so him and a couple of his other buddies, they went out there to the supply drop and they walked halfway and they were waving, trying to get the attention of the Russians. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. And so they walked out, met, and they would do this on a regular basis. They would meet in the middle of the Bering Strait. No. And my grandfather, would tra- my grandfather would trade cigars and bourbon for vodka. I love it. Yeah. And it, I love it. 
had the chain of command ever found out about anything like oh, that yeah. Yeah. during the height of the Cold War? You know, my grandfather probably would have been shot and hanged for that. I love it. I but love it. He, he was just, it was kind of like the Top Gun thing without the MIG scene, you know, it was keeping right, up diplomatic right. international relations, right, <laughs> right. just trading cigars for vodka. Right, right. So, yeah. I love but, it. My, yeah. my, uh, my commanding officer, uh, one of my commanding officers, he actually had a Russian submariner, like the, you know, the bearskin cap, and he would wear that sometimes. We would come out of port knowing that there'd be a Soviet uh, listening ship, um, you know, they were almost always waiting for us when we came out of port and he would be wearing that on the bridge and, you know, just, you know, you know, and you see them all looking at him with the, where, you know, he's wearing the bearskin. It's just, it's just fun stuff that we did back, back then. And so. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were probably thinking he was some Russian officer who defected. Right. At right, that point. right, right. <laughs> and they're trying to figure out who this traitor is. <laughs> a true true oh, that's story. Great. That same captain, he had, he had somehow acquired a Russian submarine clock. And we actually had it in our, in our control room. We had a Russian submarine clock and he would use that when we would do, you know, test missile firings and things like that. He would always set that clock. And so everything that we did, was by this Russian clock that he had brought on board. So, and I'm sure that wasn't uh, by the book or by the rules. So, but, uh, no, of course not. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it hurt nothing. No, it hurt nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It hurt nothing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's it's fun. Uh, but yeah, back then it was a. Yeah, there. It, you know, it's funny because the Cold War was like between two nation states, right? It was two, you know, and and so. I think I think now some of the the battles we're engaged with that you don't really have these two nation states where um, neither 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 side wanted a war right they were you know we were we were building up our defenses but never no one really wanted to go to war I think nowadays it's a lot different with you know the war on terrorism things like that so the guys in the military now have got a much different situation but I would imagine there's a lot of humor uh, over there as well every day. So I, I, I would venture, I would venture as to say there are a lot more cowboys now. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Than there were back in the day. Yeah. I think you're right. At, at, at least openly. Yeah. I know, uh, you know, my father was in Vietnam and he was actually on the Kitty Hawk. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, well, he, he died when I was maybe five years old. Uh, it was Agent Orange. So I didn't hear a whole lot. But my older half-brothers from my father's first wife had heard some of the stories. And, yeah, they were, uh, they were pretty much operating, you know, autonomously <laughs> over yeah. there. there was, I mean, granted, the Navy is known for its code of decorum, but in that time, you know, they really didn't have a code of decorum, you know, outside of garrison. Yeah. Well, yeah. What did they say? It's a, uh, it's a, uh, what is it? An, an alcoholic with a sailor problem or something like that. I mean, you know, sailors are known for being a little, uh, having a good time and being a little coloring outside the lines a little bit. So yeah, yeah we're the only, <laughs> we're the only force that has beer in our fight song. So I think there's something there. So. I did not know that. Yeah. Damn it. I should have joined the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't know. It's too late now. Yeah. But, uh, so we're coming up on the hour. We got about 15 minutes left. Mm -hmm. So 
let's talk a little bit about your book. What prompted you to write it, man? Well, honestly, um, my career, my plan in life, right, was to work in corporate America. And then at 55 years old, I was going to leave uh, corporate America, go to some university somewhere and teach and teach business and teach leadership. And that's what my goal, life goal was. Uh, but as you well know, your you know, plans don't always come to fruition, right? Things happen, life changes. So uh, about um, five years ago, I had an opportunity to start my own business uh, with uh, two good friends. We all left corporate America. We started our own manufacturing business and I found the joy of my life, right? Doing what I, doing, doing a business on my own, the way I want to do it, how I want to do it um, has been absolutely the best thing I've ever done. It's a blast. I, I love every day. I love my team. I love what we're doing. I love going up against $40 billion competitors and taking business away. I mean, I just, I, I, I thrive on this. So my dream of leaving the workforce to university is pretty much over because I'm 52 years old. There's no way I'm doing that now. I'm having too much fun. So, but I still wanted to teach. So I still wanted to share what I learned. I still want to help the next generation of leaders. So I started about six years ago, I started writing article, leadership articles for a few different websites. I wrote my own blog. And, um, you know, then I decided, you know, well, I'll just, let's take a stab at writing a book. It's something I always thought I would do someday. And so um, a year ago, decided to put some of these thoughts together, get my first book out there. And um, yeah, I've really been surprised at the response. You know, it's independently published. So I didn't go through a publisher. I did it on my own. And um, man, it was just a great experience. You know, it, uh, you know I'm a, it's like an old dog and a new trick. I was 51 when I wrote the book, right? And never did anything like that before. I don't know anything about publishing, know anything about being an author. Um, but we wrote the book, we got it out there and just, you know, it's been tremendous. Uh, the feedback's been great. You know, I see people posting pictures of it like in Australia and I'm like, holy cow, you know? I mean, it, 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 made, a, it made a difference in people's lives and, and so, I was just like really excited about it. I mean, it was, it, it became bigger than I thought it would. Right. Um, and so, um, and then, you know, it's just sort of, I've built, been building up an audience. There are people who are interested in about leadership topics. And so it's been building up to my next book, which I've been working on for over a year now. And um, the next book is going to be a little more, a little more traditional. This, this book here is, is shorter and I did it on purpose. It's only 114 pages. It's, you can read it in two hours and you can get a lot of good practical advice. But the book I'm writing right now is a lot more sea stories. So it's going to be a lot more. If you wanted to hear more about life on a submarine, uh, each chapter has, has three, three to four stories from, from my days in the Navy. And then I tie one story to corporate life, how I use that lesson in corporate life. So, so the next book's actually going to be a lot more of the sea stories, but um, but yeah, I just, you know, I, I took a stab. I did, I've never done, done this before um, and um, really was a rewarding experience. And now I'm sort of addicted to it because I, I really saw the impact it made in, with people. And so I really want to do more of it. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, getting the next book out. I've been working, I actually worked on it all day today. And after this, I'll go back to editing some more. So, yeah, but yeah, it's fun. And, and I know you've got your, your book out. So I mean, what was that experience like for you? I mean, uh, how was that? Uh, a little similar. You know, I've always wanted to be able to teach mm. what I've learned 
through just experience to others. And that book is also very short book. Um, it's packed with years of lessons. Yes. Yeah. But it's also relatively short because I basically wrote it. Um, I wrote it in one month as an abridged version of the last 20 years of my life, you know, and a lot happened in that period that it, it could have either made or you know, made me or broke me one or the other. But uh, I've, I felt the need to get it written. And like you, I had zero clue what yeah. I was doing. I just, yeah. you know, I wrote for the blog. I have my email list. Yeah. Um, I've contributed other blog articles for other pages. And I said, you know what? I write all the time. I'm just going to write consistently in one spot and yes. leave it there. Yes. And turn it and turn it into a book. And it's it's really all I did. But you know, my next one coming out is going to be like you, a little more traditional. It's going to be. I don't know how many pages because I'm, I'm nowhere near done with it yet, but I'm going to have it released by April. And it's, okay. it's actually a lead, It's actually a leadership book. It's a how yes. to lead your wife. Ah, I like yeah. it. I like it. Yeah. And the title may sound controversial, but the rest of but that's, it's an attention grabber. Well, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, it's funny. <laughs> when I wrote my book, um, I had, I had a, 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 guy that's, he coaches authors and uh, I've got to know him a little bit. He helped me a little bit. And when I was picking the cover, he's like, if you don't put a freaking submarine on the cover, I'm going to be mad at you. And I said, well, there's not all submarine stories in this first book. He's like, if you do not put a submarine on the cover, I'm going to be mad at you. And the point is, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you, you know, you, you know, sometimes you have to do the little, you know, something to get people's attention and uh, the, you know, the, uh, the title maybe, or what have you. But um yeah, so I, you know, so there's a there's a submarine on this cover, but uh, there's there's some some sea stories, but not as many as the next book. But uh, so sometimes you need to have something to catch people's attention. So, so similar, to your, yeah, yeah. It's a little it's a little tricks that we learn through marketing and trial and error. Right. You know. Right. Oh, yeah. people people respond to a little bit of that. Okay. Yeah. 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 So well, I mean, not, not, not clickbaity, right? Not going. No, 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 not clickbaity. But right. if, if it makes it, if it makes it something where you can look at it and go, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it's it's got to be that right balance though. Cause too much. And then again, like you said, it's very clickbaity and nobody wants it. Right. And people can see that now, right? You know, oh, yeah. through years of that. Now I think everybody's like, I'm not clicking on that. I know. I know that whatever they're saying is not going to be in the article, right? You know, it's like you won't imagine right. what this guy did. You click, it's like he didn't do anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. It was about a car. So, right, right, right. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's an experience writing, you know? It's uh, that old conundrum, uh, out of nothing, something. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. So I think, um, and I don't know what your experience has been like, but um, I think one of the things that's been really powerful is the feedback and, um, you know, where, where it's making a difference for people. And I don't know if you've gotten some of that with your book. I would think the way your book is written that it, that it, it, it could actually really help people when they read your story. Uh, but hearing that feedback is, you know, it's really powerful. You're like, oh, Okay, well, you know, this you're making a difference for somebody. And I think 
you know, in, as a leader, I'm trying to make a difference in my workforce, right? And if I can write something that makes a difference for people, then I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. It kind of gets me, uh, gets me motivated to continue to do it. So I don't know if you've, you, you experienced that yourself. I've gotten some feedback and some people that have reached out have, have been very, very, very kind. And it's, it's very humbling when you, when you hear someone say that chapter or that story in yeah. that chapter hit home so hard and it got me out of that funk. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you're like, at the time I was just winging it. You know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, yeah. but I'm really glad that, you know, it helped them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful. The words, you know, can words make a difference in someone's life? It's pretty, pretty remarkable. So yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we go on and on and on for, for, for hours about what it's like to write and <laughs> get feedback on that. But we are right here on this hour, Mark. So uh, John, I really thank you for coming on. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciated it. I enjoyed uh, meeting you and talking through this. I enjoyed it. Yeah, man. We're definitely going to have to do this again, especially when your new book comes out. I'd love to have you back on. Okay. That sounds good. And for those of you listening, if you want to get a copy of his current book, which is an Amazon bestseller, it's called I Have the Watch. You can go to IHaveTheWatch.com or you can go to RuggedLegacyGrooming.com. Click on the About Us section, and you'll see a special thank you to our partners, and you will find a link to IHaveTheWatch.com. But this way, you can grab some beard balm and any other men's grooming products you might need on the way to go get your leadership straightened out. Uh, that it does it for this. Good stuff. Yeah, that's very good <laughs> stuff. For those who can't see, because there will not be a video version of this, he just held up ah. a tin of our Jack beard balm. This man's got good taste. Yes. But that does it for this episode of the Rugged Legacy Podcast. Thank you all for listening. This is Jeff Putnam and my guest, John Ranney, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the content on all of the episodes, especially this one here. If you'd like to become a contributor and support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash Rugged Legacy and click on the support icon. Everyone wants to rise from the ashes, but very few are willing to set themselves on fire. This has been a Rugged Legacy production.